Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, today we're going to talk about one word that grosses a lot of people out. Okay. Panties. Yeah. I prefer underpants. Underpants? Underpants is my favorite word. One of my favorite words in general, and definitely my favorite way to refer to undergarments. I like going old school with pantaloons. I like that, too. I like pantaloons, too, but for everyday wear, Kristen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't wear my pantaloons to the office. Pantaloons you reserve just for, for weekends lounging around. That just makes me think that they're, like, super puffy, like the kind of little panties that you put on dolls, like baby dolls. Yeah, exactly. With with extra elasticy waistbands. So much. And really high waists. That's too. right. And Come up right right under your boobs. And possibly with like little strawberries on them. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> before we start getting too detailed about our pantaloons, uh, this week on the podcast, we're talking about the evolution of women's underwear, talking specifically about pantaloons, knickers, panties, whatever you want to call them. Not so much on bras and corsets, although, of course... That plays a role in all of this. So today on the podcast, we're going to focus on some history of unmentionables. And then next time, we're actually talking to an underpants entrepreneur, the founder of Dear Kate Underwear. And as we'll talk about in that episode some more, there is some really impressive underwear technology going on. Um, But... We have to back way up, way, 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 like French Revolution up before we can talk about amazing modern underwear technology. We have to talk about the origins of women even donning underpants in the first place. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we we could, we could talk about loincloths for a while, but we're going <laughs> to hop skip over loincloths and head into... The 18th century. When, uh, before we talk about underwear, let's, let's lay the foundation of the fact that personal hygiene, a little bit dicey in those days. <laughs> you had to worry about things like fleas, lice, crabs. People weren't showering regularly. People weren't washing their clothes regularly. There was no indoor heating or cooling or electricity. And also, and partially because of all of that lack of technology, most ladies, Went commando. That's right. Um, there was also the idea around hygiene that uh, women definitely should air out their lady bits because otherwise they could start to smell rotten. And in my mind, reading that, I'm like, no, that just means that you should have gone to a doctor. Although, of course, when we're talking about 18th century, like, what are, what are you going to do exactly? Leeches? Like, ugh. I mean, they were doing the best they could. They were doing the best they could, and in their minds, airing things out down there was proper hygiene. And so that involved not putting anything over it to restrict airflow. Yeah, and on top of that, in order to stay warm and also to be properly dressed, that involved lots of overclothes. And also, since skirts and dresses reached all the way down to the floor, there was no risk of accidentally upskirt flashing everyone. But of course, what came along with that, not having any type of underpants and just wearing lots of skirts and petticoats and chemises. Kristen, is that is that a 
correct pronunciation? Chemise? 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 Is it really? A hard so. C? Okay. Um, well, I mean, there was also the fact that there were no period panties, for sure, in the 18th century. And so, also the kind of upside of wearing all of those layers is that it would absorb all of the things that needed absorbing. That's right. The, the euphemism, the period euphemism of being on the rag, mm-hmm. comes from... The, that pre-maxi pad and pre-underwear days when women would literally have to uh, sit on a pile of rags and let Aunt Flo do her thing. That's right. And so by the late 1700s, there were a couple advancements in terms of lighter fabrics coming into fashion. And this prompted additional covering needed to keep our crotches warm in the wintertime. Yeah. And just as a side note, a lot of this timeline was put together from Pauline Weston Thomas's fantastic website, Fashion Era, as well as History Undressed. So our crotches are getting a little colder as oh. dress fabrics start to lighten up. But then once we move into the 19th century, empire fashions did away largely with stays and women's undergarments. Yes, we start wearing more undergarments, but we borrow from men's pantaloons. Yeah, we started wearing like short pants, basically, but they weren't pants. They were pantaloons and they attached at the waist and also at the knee. Um, but they definitely were still open crotched because God forbid women wear or appropriate anything that could be considered masculine and pants were definitely considered to be men's clothing only. Yeah. And a note on knickers, especially for our British listeners. In 1809, Washington Irving wrote the history of New York, all about this breeches wearing character, Dietrich Knickerbocker. And that's where the word knickers eventually uh, comes from. And knickers and drawers would become interchangeable. But knickers wouldn't become a widespread term for underwear until the 1880s. So funnily enough, knickers, the British term for panties, what we would call panties in the U.S., actually originated in the U.S. But we should also say that where drawers came from, and that's literally the drawing down of of pants, of underpants. And also helpful, too, that you might store them in a drawer. <laughs> True, which would also be called a drawer because you're drawing it towards you. I just like to put R's in things. And speaking of said drawers, by 1830, most women were wearing them, although there were some differences. They weren't all the same. Women had choice even back in the day when their undergarments were cumbersome. So the upper class ladies typically wore shorter drawers, but there were also pantaloons, which were ankle length, and pantalettes, which had a lot of decorative lace and embroidery going on with them. Yeah, I I mean, if you were... Super poor, you probably wouldn't be wearing any underwear at all. But definitely by this point, undergarments were happening. But these undies were crotchless because going to the bathroom would have otherwise required completely undressing due to the fact that with your drawers, you are also wearing a corset. And for anyone who has put a corset on or can imagine what wearing a corset would feel like. You don't have lots of mobility. And also considering that you have all of these skirts and petticoats as well that you have to manage, it's a lot easier to pull your drawers to the side and go that way rather Mm -hmm. than having to drop them 
drop your drawers. Right. You kind of you kind of just hike the skirts up and squat. There's, yeah. There's no pulling anything. There's no drawing anything down. And I think too that you would put on your your pantalettes or drawers or pantaloons or whatever you would like to call them first, and then the corset would go over it to create a smoother silhouette. Also, if there are any costume historians listening. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you in case uh, you have other things to add or corrections to make. Because the history of undergarments is pretty overwhelming, to be honest, just because there are all these different names and different styles, but they're all sort of the same thing. Yeah, well, and also the fact that there's so much more information out there about bras, for instance, than underwear, underpants. Um, but writing about this whole crotchless underwear phenomenon uh, in her book, Erotic Modesty, Addressing Female Sexuality and Propriety in Open and Closed Drawers from 1800 to 1930, uh, Jill Fields writes that this whole crotchless underwear thing was really part of a larger uh, gender differentiation that was going on during this time. Women's clothes were becoming more and more frilly and feminine. Uh, men's clothes were, you know, pants still. Yeah, this would have been on the heels of what was called the Great Masculine Renunciation when men who were previously wearing makeup, rouge sometimes, those puffy powdered wigs we're starting to just wear more masculine clothes in the way that we would think of it today. And so, yeah, the, the, the gender differences in wardrobe really emerge at this time all the way down to the crotches in our underwear. Right, because women's clothes were always non-divided. Skirts. There's no division there going up into the dangerous crotch region, whereas men's clothes were always divided. They had pants that covered their crotch. And so women donning things, items of clothing under their non-divided clothes, the fact that there was some division going on now was very sort of... Socially, it was it was a new thing socially to have something divided under women's clothes. And so by virtue of the fact that this these underwear, these new items of underwear did not have a crotch, they were open and they really just fastened at the waist and at the knee that that sort of reduced some of the controversy. And so Fields writes about this, quote, the apparently functional aspects of open drawers underscore these meanings by referencing women's biological difference, thus constructing women's bodies as different on a daily basis. And I also wonder, too, if there was, in addition to the concern over women wearing this divided garment, also a concern with covering the crotch because that would have been fabric so close to the vulva. Oh. You know, I mean, c- considering the time and how terrified we were of anything, you know, coming in contact with that that wasn't a husband who wanted to make a baby, <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Um, okay. And so for that reason, too, you know, we, a lot of us have probably seen those famous photos of Queen Victoria's large, crotchless drawers that she would wear. Right, but they were not the sexy. They weren't they did not have the same connotation that we think of today when we think of crotchless panties, but we'll get into that later. So, by the time we hit 1876, the crotch of our drawers closed and was replaced by buttons at the hip. That does not mean that crotchless underwear disappeared by any means. It definitely still continued for decades, but 
At this time, you had knickers made of silk, of flannel, of alpaca wool. I can't imagine. <laughs> and then they, as the century progressed, they'd become wider and frillier. They would help fill out the wider petticoats of the time that ended up becoming fashionable. And you might even wear your fancy woolen alpaca wool knickers over these things called combinations, which was basically what, like, it was a, it was almost a romper, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a, a camisole bodice attached to knickers, eliminating the need for a camise. Um, and remember, though, these kinds of fabrics that a lot of this stuff was being made of, particularly for wealthier women at the time, things like alpaca wool, which we could, you, I, I would not imagine wearing. I mean, we have woolen underwear, like the long johns today, but thinking of buying a pack of uh, woolen panties seems very unhygienic. But All of the sweat. So much sweat, trapping so much heat. But we didn't have the kind of lightweight cotton fabric at an affordable existing period, but also cotton at an affordable rate at the time anyway. So there's a technological aspect to this as well. But there were also a number of more liberal women who were rather tired of the fact that they were wearing so many garments. And we've talked about these Mm -hmm. women before a number of times on the podcast, the dress reformers of the 19th century. Yeah, these are women who were like, hey, we actually want to leave the house and be able to take deep breaths and not faint on our fainting couches all the time. And And just move around, maybe ride a bicycle. (laughs) Maybe ride a bicycle. Um, But so this is coming from Reforming Women's Fashion, 1850 to 1920, Politics, Health and Art by Patricia A. Writes about how the dress reformers' garments were designed on four basic principles no ligature, uniform temperature, lightness of weight, and suspension from the shoulders, basically freeing women from the constrictions of the corset, but also from all of those bulky, heavy layers. Yeah, and so we have women like Amelia Bloomer, whom we've mentioned a number of times. Uh, she debuted her eponymous Bloomer suit. In 1851, which was sort of like a ankle calf or ankle length puffy trousers and over which you would wear a dress or a skirt that would only come down mid calf. Mm -hmm. And even though you're still covered from head to toe, it lends more mobility. Sure. But it was also still considered quite scandalous. So scandalous. People were so afraid of what this meant for the social order of the day. Women wearing pants. I mean, they were all we've talked on the podcast before about what suffrage, the suffrage movement did for like cartooning, for instance, that everyone drew these cartoons of these sad men abandoned at home by their suffragist wives. And it was kind of the same thing because of bloomers and, and pants and women wanting to wear regular clothes that allowed them to move freely and actually leave the house and ride a bicycle. People were so afraid that suddenly like men would have to start wearing dresses because surely if women wear pants, then men can't wear pants too. Well, it echoes back too to what you were saying earlier, Caroline, of how women wore skirts, bifurcated clothes, i.e. pants, Mm -hmm. breeches, were for men. Yeah, men wore the pants. So for the liberal women who were interested in dress reform, but weren't entirely comfortable with the notion of a bloomer suit or wearing trousers, 
underwear reform was seen as a more subtle and acceptable kind of fashion revolution. So you have things like the Emancipation Union under flannel, (laughs) which was patented in 1868. And this really looks a lot like just a union suit that you might even see still today, sort of like um, like a long sleeve shirt and pants all in sort of a onesie, like a giant onesie, like a giant onesie. I like the term under flannel. Oh, it's just my under flannel. Yeah, those are your winter under underpants. My, my under flannel's bunching up. <laughs> <laughs> and one person who I think that we should uh, devote an entire podcast to at some point, because she's fascinating, who adopted the dress reform undersuit was Dr. Mary Walker, who was a doctor during the Civil War and actually the first woman to receive a Medal of Honor. And she was very liberal and a dress reformer to the degree that she was arrested a number of times because she would wear men's suits mm-hmm. in public. She was like, listen, I'm not wearing all of this corsetry and skirts and petticoats and all this stuff. This is ridiculous. Ain't nobody got time for that. But yeah, yeah she'd, she'd wear the frock coat and the trousers. And she was convinced that the uh, dress reform undersuit that she helped design would prevent rape and seduction. Yeah, that was another interesting thing about these uni- these union suits, these emancipation suits, was how intentionally unsexy they were. Right, under flannel. There's nothing sexy about under flannel. Oh, but so warm. So warm. Perfect for snuggling. That's right, just like a Snuggie. Uh, okay. And then in 1875, just for another example of how uh, there was a lot of interest in this kind of underwear reform, Susan Taylor Converse of Woburn, Massachusetts, debuted her emancipation suit, which was a corset and corset cover all in one. But you could separate it into two pieces by buttons at the hip. So there was sort of a spectrum of this kind of dress reform where you see things like this, where it's like, well, we don't want to Im- abandon female undergarments entirely, maybe we can just transition it into something a little more manageable. Yeah, it's it's funny to think of all the effort that, that was going into underwear at the time when we just go to the department store or Target or something and pick up panties of our own today. Yeah, it's funny to think of under flannels being patented. Yeah, exactly. So much underwear effort. Um, but so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to move into the 20th century. Underwear gets a little bit more modern. And now back to the show. So in the first half of the podcast, we briefly mentioned Queen Victoria and her massive crotchless undergarments. And it really is in large part, thanks to Queen Victoria's massive fashion influence, that by the time we get into the 1900s, obviously we've moved out of the Victorian era through the Edwardian, we're now into the progressive era, that... all but the poorest women, because a lot of our history so far has really only been focused on women who could afford undergarments, but all but the poorest women were wearing some sort of undergarment. And it might be crotchless. It might not be crotchless. Yeah, but it is, regardless, it is interesting to watch as fashion has evolved since the um, 19th century, since even the 18th century. It's interesting to watch as fashion evolves and the silhouettes evolve, that underwear silhouettes and bulk and size and crotches all evolve with it. 
Yeah, so in the 1910s and 20s, there was an undergarment revolution afoot because this is the time, of course, when corsets and full floor-length skirts were going away in favor of the slimmer silhouettes. You have people like Caress Crosby inventing these revolutionary things called bras and women being like, you know what? I'm a new woman. I don't think I have to wear this corset anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think of, for instance, something that I'm obsessed with, which is Down Abbey. Think of the period costumes that they wear on that show and that they have very slim silhouettes and they're not going to be wearing bulky under flannel under those lovely silk dresses. Yeah, and World War One plays a big role in this as well because... As we talk about a lot when it comes to World War II, during World War I, there were lots of women who ended up working in the factories to take over the jobs that the men left behind. And one thing that sort of helped society get used to this notion of women doing men's work, in quotes, some would wear what were termed womanalls, which were essentially... Kind of like a mesh between overalls and coveralls, um, but a little bit cuter, to be honest. Or maybe it was just the hairstyles they at the were, time. Well, they were poofier. Yeah, they were a little puffy. They look, they remind me because bloomers also were very puffy because they still had to sort of resemble skirts so that f- people wouldn't freak out, but they did anyway. And so these womanalls definitely were like a puffier, softer, more feminine version. And that was definitely on on purpose. I mean, there was a lot of anxiety around women wearing pants to the point where they obviously had to rename them womanalls instead of overalls or coveralls because, again, I mean, it's just another interesting illustration of the anxiety around women adopting or appropriating anything that had been considered masculine or just for men. Well, and probably the only reason that this happened, and women wouldn't be wearing pants en masse immediately after World War One. It would still take time. But the only reason that the tide started to change was because wearing skirts in a factory setting was a liability. Right. It was an actual safety hazard. So they had to wear womanalls or trousers. But once you start wearing these closer fitting bifurcated garments, guess what? Your underwear has to change as well. And this is what leads to our underwear crotches closing up for good. And so now we're moving into the flapper era and your silhouettes are slimmer, your dress hemlines are definitely shorter. And so a lot of new underwear technology basically had to be developed to accompany the fashion of the day. Yeah, there were things called tango knickers. There were kemi knickers, which was a combination between underskirts and camises. And there were also flappers cami knickers and cami bockers. Now, the differences between these individual kinds of undergarments are not huge. They're all sort of either combinations of uh, bodices and knickers or just different, you know, different kinds of shorts. I mean, cause we aren't, we aren't to the point to where they're high cut. Our full thighs are not exposed. Yeah. We're still wearing, if anything, shorts because the hemlines have risen with the flapper era, um, but there are definitely more options and sexier options, too, mm-hmm. because it's also during the flapper era that women's sexuality in conjunction, too, with uh, the development of the movie industry and pop culture in that sense 
women's sexuality starts to come a little bit more to the forefront. And so, you know, an eligible dame is going to have some sexy flappers, cami knickers. And so even before women get cami knickers, a bunch of retailers and manufacturers are starting to get in on this changing underwear technology game. And they're actually starting to both advertise and mass produce underpants. For instance, in 1911, the Saturday Evening Post publishes the first print ad for underwear. Granted, it was for men, but it was called the Kenosha Closed Crotch. And I assure you, it's all spelled with K's. All K's. The closed crotch. I don't know why. I don't know why. Other than maybe it looked good in the print ad. Well, I also like that their tagline was, the classiest garment made. Hey, gentlemen want to be classy. That's right. And right around this time, too, you start having print advertisements for women's underwear. But it's understandable that the men's underwear is going to get the first ad, too, because that's, well, less scandalous. Right. Seeing a lady in her undergarments. Um, but... Once we're in the early 20s, we have all of these different kinds of knickers for sale. The length of them, again, is going to fluctuate in accordance with hemlines. And this is also when we have the emergence of that loathed by many word, panty. Panty. It is a very diminutive word. Um, But in 1922, Sears and Roebuck sells possibly the first period panties. And they were... Solely for nighttime use. Yeah, probably because they were higher cut and would be deemed inappropriate for everyday wear. But Caroline, you mentioned just a second ago that that panty is a very diminutive sounding word, which is probably where a lot of the creep factor comes from. A grown Mm -hmm. woman wearing panties. it It just doesn't really mesh well. And etymologically, it is pretty diminutive because before the turn of the century, Children were making so-called panties for their dollies, which uh, panties was just a shortened form of pantalette. And panty, though, might have originated as a derogatory term for men's underwear because, you know, they were the original pantaloon wearers. And then if you move to 1910, before we have the emergence of panties for women, panty waist became an insult for weak or cowardly man, the opposite of a manly man who wears the pants, which was an expression that came out in 1931. I love, I, I don't encourage the use of uh, words to diminish people in general. However, uh, I did like, I giggled out loud when I read Panty Waste because that is such like a, an old school antiquated insult. I just picture like the man, you know, in the striped leotard, like with his barbells and his handlebar mustache being like, hey, you Panty Waste. <laughs> so, putting up his dukes. Putting up his dukes. Well, by the time those men start wearing the pants, so to speak, in the early 1930s, women start to wear, for the very first time, the kinds of close-fitting underwear similar to high-waist lady briefs that we see today. And funnily enough, they looked a lot like those period panties sold by Sears and Roebuck in 1922. Yeah, and it's around this time that we're developing those close-fitting panties like what we think of today. Because up until now, the crotches were lower, possibly, like you mentioned earlier, to avoid that dangerous contact with the dangerous lady crotch. Yeah, I, I think that that had a lot to do with it. Because if you do look at underwear 
up until this time, it's all kind of drop waste mm-hmm. in a way, a lot, mm-hmm. leaving a lot of room. But I wonder too if that has to do with fabric technology, because there was still always through all of this the concern of the vaginal canal getting enough air to it and enough circulation so that you don't get the rotten crotch. Uh, I said it, Caroline, uh, but let's be honest. That's that's what they were trying to avoid. Well, we all know that our vaginas breathe. They have their own respiratory system independent from our own lungs, so it's good to keep air flowing. But I mean, yeah, it's it's not like undergarments of the time were stretchy. It's not like you could just pull them up and snap them. Snap them into place, so I, I I get it. But it's it. There are some there are some interesting issues to examine there about why people didn't want fabric up close to their labia. Well, even this closer fitting underwear in the 1930s wasn't necessarily the, the kind that we would see, you know, in a, a store today, like a pack of Hanes cotton underwear that's super easy to take care of because we didn't have things like washers and dryers. In the home and because of fabric technology at the time, women's underwear still required a lot of maintenance, a lot of hand washing, ironing. They still had lots of buttons. Yeah, you shook your head when you said ironing. Women had to iron their underwear. I you had know. to get it laundered. I don't even iron my shirt. <laughs> I surely would not iron my underwear. But then around World War II, women's underwear definitely becomes a little more simplified. And this is attributed partly to Elsa Schiaparelli. Uh, she uh, is credited with putting in elastic waistbands to, into underwear. And this is great, right? Except the whole reason that she did it is because of famine related to World War II and shrinking waistlines. Because with buttons and things, your underwear might just fall right off of you if you started losing a lot of weight. Yeah, and she also made them out of drip-dry material, so they were easier to care for as well. And she was motivated to uh, not only to facilitate better fit, but also to allow women to ride yet again bicycles Bicycles. around. So much of these spurts of uh, development that we see in women's underwear is largely motivated by mobility. Yeah. And we have these times when it's it's World War One when we finally close up the crotches because, oh, women are working and now it's World War Two and women are working again and needing to move around and get from place to place. Same thing going back to the eighteen thirties with the dress reformers. Um it's really interesting to see those kinds of parallels. So after World War Two, we're wearing underwear similar to what we're wearing today. We're wearing bras and panties or knickers. But in the 50s and 60s, particularly with the return to domesticity, you have it's kind of the the, the leave it to beaver era, the madman era. Women are also wearing lots of foundation garments. Yeah. So we've got the the pointy nuclear shaped bras, the petticoats, girdles, garter belts become a thing and stockings. Yeah, because it's all about creating the ideal lady shape, the small waist, the pointy boobs, and then the poofy skirt. Well, I mean, but that's that's not a new thing. I mean, women were wearing bustles. Women were wearing corsets. This is just, it's like another corset, except it's a pointy bra and you can actually take a deep breath in it. But isn't it interesting, though, that when we have that return to domesticity, we put more undergarments back on, Caroline? Mm. Mm. 
But yeah, starting around the 1970s and all the way through today, our underwear starts to get smaller and smaller and less and less. Yeah, by the time we reach the mid-90s, that's when we have, for instance, the arrival and mass of the thong. Yeah, and then the G-string. Which I think, and, and we did a whole episode on uh, the thong and the invention of the thong and all of that. Uh, so go to stuffmumnevertoldyou.com and search thong and you can listen to it. Um, but I would say, and we talked about this in that episode, I think thongs are out for the most part. They're functional, but I don't think they're fashionable anymore. No, man. I have said it before in the podcast, Kristen, and I will say it again. Just laser-cut boy shorts are the way to go. No panty lines and also no wedgies. But what about under flannels? Under flannels. Ugh, that might be good for sleeping. Yeah. Rainy Sunday afternoons oh. in your under flannel. Yes, listening to podcasts all day long. <laughs> but we've mentioned along the way how technology has facilitated this development of underwear. We just want to briefly focus a little bit more on that. And this is coming from a paper in the Journal of Popular Culture by Janet and Peter Phillip called History from Below, Women's Underwear and the Rise of Women's Sport, which is really fascinating. It it, it obviously focuses a lot on sport, and we're not going to talk about sport so much. Um, but it talked about how these fabric innovations and also the arrival of elastic who really did so much for us. It meant that we could wear the underwear that we are wearing or not wearing today. And then alongside elastic, which in the early 20th century was slowly beginning to replace things like drawstrings and buttons in underpants, we get the affordability of breathable cotton fabric. Finally! breathable cotton. And so this was coming about thanks to spreading prosperity and shrinking poverty, which kind of gave rise to the use of cotton dresses in addition to cotton underwear, especially as our environments that we were living and existing in were better heated. Yeah. And all of this is contributing to uh, better hygiene at home. I mean, we also have better understanding of hygiene um, and things like running water and electricity, which would eventually facilitate washers and dryers, all of which contributes to the kind of underwear that we were able to wear. Um, but then during the World Wars eras, you also have the development of synthetic fibers, which were both a blessing and a curse for women's crotches. Because in the 20s and 30s, for instance, uh, rayon was all the rage. And then in World War II, nylon was a big deal and polyester as well. And so it allowed these for these new and lighter kinds of underwear for women in those different kinds of shapes that we had talked about. But it took a while for them to figure out, especially um, after we got to the 60s with Lycra and spandex, that while that's all fine, well and good, but you probably need to have cotton in the crotch for that breathability factor. Yeah, because of the vagina's respiratory system. It's got to breathe. You got to <laughs> let. That lady breathe. Really, you just don't want sweat no. too much down there. <laughs> no. Uh, no more under flannel. Um, and so, yeah, and that's when in the 1970s you get those cotton gussets that help improve underwear hygiene. And Caroline, for a possibly TMI side note on something my mom did tell me, mm-hmm. I remember when I was hitting puberty and she was talking to me more about you know, my bod, my sweet lady bod. Uh-huh. Uh, she emphasized the importance of 
the 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 cotton crotch and underwear. Hmm. You know, she was like, Kristen, don't you need to do that. You need to let her breathe. So I'm really just like parroting my mother because she was emphatic about it for the prevention of things like yeast infections and all of those other things that can happen. For sure. And it has stuck in my brain, Caroline, ever since. So thanks, Mom. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I feel like my mother and I had an underwear conversation, but I can't remember it. And that's probably like mentally on purpose. Well, it's probably a big deal for... My mom and, and women of our mom's ages, because it was in the 1970s mm-hmm. that those cotton gussets, the, the crotches, were brought along, like became more standard in underwear to improve underwear hygiene. Because there was, I think it was in maybe the late 1960s or early 70s, where there was sort of an outbreak of infections that women were getting from panties made with certain synthetic fibers that were not good for your vaginal ecosystem. Right. Well, your body's natural and your underwear should be natural. That's right. Just all made of uh, gluten-free, uh, <laughs> no partially hydrogenated oils Dairy-free, or dyes. sugar-free underwear. But one thing that we haven't really talked about in this timeline we've been going through is the increased sexualization of underwear because it really did start out as this utilitarian kind of thing. I mean, yeah. if you look back in in art for, for in like the 18th century, of course there are eroticized images of women just in their corsets and petticoats. But it's so different from today where you have Victoria's Secret and mm-hmm. it's it's very it's all about sexiness or cute. You need to be sexy, cute, yeah, well, the impression that I got reading Jill Field's paper, Erotic Modesty, which, I mean, she goes, she goes in depth yeah. on underwear and clothing and just sort of the political implications of all of these things. And some of the things she talks about are the fact that, you know, underwear is a functional thing and, and women do need it for various reasons, have needed it for various reasons and have needed it to perform various functions. But going all the way back to people being scared of women wearing bifurcated garments up to today, there's been that fear of women being too masculine. And so in the night, she talks about how in the 1920s and, and really any time that underwear veers too close to being too masculine or too functional, that there's always the, uh, an, a, push that accompanies this to make it very pretty also. So as soon as women start wearing semi-bifurcated underwear, uh, let's make them pantalettes and attach lace on the bottom of the knee. Or as soon as women are wearing more panty-style underwear, oh, well, let's make them sexy and have a garter belt and have more of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge sexuality to it because while it's bad and dangerous and scary to think of a woman's crotch or her sexuality, of course people associated underwear with eroticism and being sexy. Yeah, um, she actually talks about the the relationship between those things in going back to the, the open crotched era, she said, wearing these drawers marked a female body as conforming to the dictates of respectable femininity, including the unspoken provision of sexual accessibility via that open crotch. Mm -hmm. But then as the crotch closes up and women attain things like the right to vote and then more of us start going to work, she says, 
In the 20th century, open crotch garments were signified as primarily erotic and that the transition from open to closed drawers reveals not only the power of clothing as a medium of signification, but how women's struggles for autonomy interact with resistant social forces to reconfigure gender distinctions. Because this is one thing that popped out in a few sources, how in the 1980s you have the woman in the power suit, she's going to work and she's got the big shoulder pads and she's trying to make her way. And outwardly, she's wearing clothes that really mimic men's clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the lady suits, women wearing the floppy bow ties. But underneath, this is the era of the sexy teddies. Right. Yeah. Think of Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl, which is one of my all time favorite movies. But Sigourney Weaver being like the tough ball busting boss. But when she breaks her leg and she's at home, or I think even when she's in the hospital, too, with her leg like up in a cast, she's wearing a sexy, silky negligee because you can't have a woman just being too masculine or too powerful. Yeah. And and now it seems like a lot of our concern has shifted, interestingly, uh, to the age that someone is wearing sexy underwear. We get concerned about, and I, when I say we, I mean, like, culturally, the conversations that crop up when, say, you know, there are too sexy of underwear in the girls' section at Target. Well, yeah, I mean, but there have been, there have been eight things around underwear and age forever, because Fields writes about, I think it's in the 19th century, if I'm not mistaken, early 19th century, when, you know, boys and girls would basically be dressed the same up until they're about five, but that girls, young girls would wear panties or pantaloons or, you know, the, the, well, basically the underwear that you and I were joking about at the top of the podcast, the puffy pantaloons that would allow girls active play. Mm-hmm. It would allow them to be rough and tumble, allow them to get a lot of activity. It wasn't until they hit puberty or hit like sexual maturity or marrying age that it was like, OK, well, now you put on the corset that restricts your movement. Now you put on the all of the petticoats and undergarments and other things that restrict your movement, because now you're a sexually mature adult woman who is just expected to sit there. Well, and that ties into one thing we didn't have a chance to talk about, which was the development of the trousseau mm-hmm. of the tradition of uh, a m- woman of a marrying age being co- sort of storing up her her sexy petticoats that right. she would wear for her husband. And that's where the wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing comes in, because underwear is not supposed to be sexy. It's just functional, but it's supposed to be sexy. But it's supposed to be sexy. Yeah. But one final note, though, Caroline, before we sign off, is that when it comes to women's underwear, moving away from the age thing, but just women's underwear, I feel like today we don't even talk about underwear so much because we have so many styles to choose from. People have kind of gotten over the whole thong horror. And now we're just focused on talking about what's underneath our boy shorts, thongs, mm-hmm. laser cut, briefs, whatever <laughs> it might be. Now yeah. we're just like, oh, it's all pube talk. <laughs> Which says a lot about how we culturally have evolved in terms of women's sexuality, but still have lots of hangups in terms of our bodies. Yeah. So with this, uh, really curious to hear from people about your thoughts on underwear. I want to know if other people are grossed out by the word panty and why. If we have costume historians listening, I'm sure you have lots to contribute to this conversation as well. And wondering from men whether we need to do a podcast on boxers, 
versus briefs <laughs> or the, the the closed crotch with the K, yeah. the Kenosha closed crotch. You can email us momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So we've got a couple of letters here from our episode about Taylor Swift. And this one is from Madison, subject line, T. Swifty and her feminism. She writes, as one of the many people who just now started recognizing Taylor Swift after that ridiculously catchy song of hers, Shake It Off, came out, I'm becoming more impressed of the feminist impact she's having on young girls. Coming from a small, mostly country town, I grew up under the notion that feminism was a bunch of angry lesbians yelping about how much they hate men. It never made sense to me until I started listening to your podcast, and it clicked. These girls that are listening to Taylor's music and seeing her self-confidence need that fulfillment at this time where they happen to be insecure while trying to discover who they are. They see her as this woman who knows what she wants and deserves, who isn't afraid to stand up for something she should have rights to. She has that girl-next-door essence that's easy to relate to. Therefore, she can easily be that good influence for girls while showing them how to be feminist powerhouses all through songs. It really goes to show that music is a powerful thing. This was such a well-worded podcast. Another wonderful, outstanding job. Well done, ladies. So thank you, Madison. Well, I have a letter here from Erin. She says, I just finished listening to your Taylor Swift episode and absolutely loved it. It's impossible not to respect her after that light you shed. I'm obsessed. Just ask my boyfriend who's forced to jam to 1989 in the car with me. I haven't always been a Swifty, though. Like many others, I used to think she was just a pretty face manipulated by the biz and a little bit of auto-tune. One summer, my friend had an extra ticket for her Speak Now concert, and I reluctantly went. I was blown away by her stage presence and the fact that she could play guitar, piano, ukulele, and banjo. There was no denying she had talent. It wasn't until I learned more about her completely boss ownership of her brand, her embracing feminism, and her switch to a genre that was more up my alley that I absolutely adored her. But that isn't why I'm writing. The number one reason why I put Taylor Swift on a golden pedestal is that she's a role model for young girls to pick up music. For two years, I worked at a mom-and-pop music store that catered to introducing kids to music, providing them with their first instruments and offering a great lessons program. Seeing students glow when they played their first few notes was my favorite part of my job. Unfortunately, only one out of four students were girls. The endless supply of dudes holding guitars in the media has made instruments a boy thing. Yes, that is what a young customer told his little sister. T-Swift challenges this extremely ridiculous notion. I have seen firsthand how she inspires young girls to learn music. When we show them all the easy sheet music from Red in 1989 that they can play, they're immediately begging their parents to buy them a guitar. We put on an optional semi-monthly concert, but it's usually only the boys signing up. That is, until we had an exclusively Taylor Swift concert. It was our greatest attendance ever. No other musician inspires such a love of music, and I can't possibly put into words how important that is. So thank you so much, Aaron. I love that story. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And to find links to all of our social media, as well as all of our videos, blogs, and podcasts with our sources so you can follow along with us, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. 